Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. This is part two with the amazing Lisa Rankin. We had so much to, uh, we started exploring and opening up so much in part one that I just felt that we had to do a part two and no idea where this is going, but it just felt like uh, a part two was was emerging and so I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking awesome. forward to it. Awesome. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, it's always um, lovely to be with you, Coop. I thought it was really powerful something you, you had mentioned um in part one about disease, illness, you know, and the connection to loneliness and how there have been studies of the impacts of loneliness on our health, literally on our physical health. And I would love for you to share a bit more about like what you've discovered and what you found and how this epidemic of loneliness is impacting us uh, today. Yeah, there's, I'll tell you an interesting backstory around that um, because uh, there was a, a sort of history that led up to me doing a TEDx talk called the number one public health epidemic doctors aren't talking about which was loneliness. And it was about the science of loneliness as it relates to physical health. But that all started when I was teaching a class with my spiritual teacher, Rachel Naomi Remen, who's a physician. She's an 84-year-old former Stanford physician um, who's a professor at UCSF now still. And Rachel and I were teaching a class uh, called Medicine for the Soul. And we were asking people to sort of you know, examine their social life and figure out who are the friends of your ego versus who are the friends of your soul. And it was an online program and we were not prepared for the wound that we opened up with that question. And the number of people in that program, we had a thousand people in this program and the number of people that were saying, I don't have a single soul friend. I don't have a single person I can be authentic with. I, I'm surrounded by people, but I feel lonely or I don't have anybody around me. And we were unprepared for the depth of the trauma that we were touching by even asking that question. And one of Rachel's other students, her students are all doctors. And one of her other students is Vivek Murthy, the current Surgeon General. And she and Vivek started talking about this as a public health issue. Like, is this something the Surgeon General should be addressing? Mm. And ironically, Vivek put out a book called Together about the science of loneliness and the importance of getting off the internet and being together in person. And it came out March, 2020. Mm. And so, of course, this is the beginning of the pandemic and we were together less than ever, right? We yeah. were going more and more apart and more and more onto Zoom and more and more onto social media platforms and less and less together. Mm -hmm. And the if you look at the data 
from the researchers who look at blue zones. Blue zones are those parts of the world where there's a greater than usual percentage of people who live disability-free lives until they're over 100. And so a lot of researchers have looked at those communities to see like, is it their water? Is it their diet? What is it that they're doing? And the number one conclusion Mm. that blue zone researchers have come up with is that they're never lonely. That those communities tend to be communities where there's a strong sense of belonging, even if there's poverty, even if there's other risk factors for potentially poor health. Mm. And and so, you know, one of the example, I, I ended up putting a whole chapter about the science of this in Mind Over Medicine, and I just did a revised edition of it in 2020. And one of the great examples in the sort of loneliness research literature is the story of Rosetto, Pennsylvania. Have you heard this story, Coot? No, no. Okay. This was back in the 50s, but there was a community of Italian immigrants who had settled in a sort of mountainous, difficult terrain, rocky part of Pennsylvania called Rosetto. And... A cardiologist was visiting and was kind of sitting at the bar talking to the local doctor. And the local doctor said, yeah, it's the strangest thing. These people have Rosetto. They never get heart disease. In fact, they don't get hardly any disease. They seem to just die of old age. Mm. And so this cardiologist wondered if this was just a rumor and went into the um, medical records of the hospital. And he was like, sure enough, these people had half the rate of heart disease as the rest Mm. of the country. And he thought, well, let's bring some researchers in to study them. And so they studied them. They thought maybe it was their diet, but they were eating like meatballs fried in lard. They couldn't afford the olive oil that they had used back in Italy. You know, they're eating pizza. They're drinking like a whole bottle of wine every night. They're cigarette smokers. Wow. (laughs) They're going, okay, it's not that, right? And so (laughs) they're looking at their healthcare and their water and all these other factors. But the, the the people, the other people in the nearby communities had the same health care and the same water. And so they looked at their genetics and they were mm-hmm. tracing their genes and they couldn't find anything other than they said these people are never lonely. And because of that, mm-hmm. they don't have to um, face the stressors of life by themselves. They live in multi-generational homes. Nobody's on welfare. If somebody is, you know, comes upon hard times, other people in the community are connected to them and help them out. They have child care. There's no such thing as like a single mother raising three kids, having to work by herself, putting the kids in daycare. Like none of that is happening. They all go to the same church. They have mm. religious festivities together. They they all make dinner together. They go and their jobs were difficult. The women mostly worked in the blouse factory and mm. the men worked in the rock quarry. So very blue collar jobs, but they would come home after their work and they would play chess and the kids would play and the women would make the food and they would, you know, um, talk about their day and de- de-stress from the stress of their day. Uh, and the elders all lived with the children. And so there was nobody in a nursing home. And they basically concluded that the stressors of everyday life for people that are socially isolated are so hard on their nervous systems that that it, it deactivates their body's natural self-healing systems, including the immune system and all the ways that the body is designed to mm help us live disability-free lives until we're over 100. But those natural self-healing mechanisms get disabled when the nervous system is in chronic fight, 
flight, freeze, or fawn, which are different types of stress responses, mm. and loneliness or the sense of social isolation, even if you're surrounded by people yeah. that you're not emotionally connected to, is one of the greatest threats to humans because we're tribal beings. We're meant mm -hmm. to be in small tribes the way many indigenous tribes live and to have that tribal connection so that we don't have to navigate life alone. There's a great book called Bowling Alone about the science of loneliness and health. Wow. Wow. That's deep. That's yeah. Deep. Yeah. And so, and so like, what are your thoughts then in terms of like, okay, I was going to go in the direction of technology, but what are your thoughts on, on the last few years and lockdowns, social distancing you know was this i'm curious to hear like from from your medical and spiritual perspective yeah could we have handled it differently as a culture as a society shoot like 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 if you're saying loneliness and i would never have thought like wow loneliness had that much of an impact but 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 hearing you talk how do we handle things like a pandemic I mean, I'm not a public health doctor, and I think this is the kind of these are the kinds of questions that we'll be wrestling with for decades after this pandemic. Yeah. But I know what I can say is that for sure we were in a health double bind, mm. right? Because mm. coming together to sit in community was a public health risk factor for COVID, right? Mm -hmm. And millions, millions of people died from this valid mm infections. So the public health guidelines for social distancing and lockdown and all of that are based on good data, right? Yeah. That was a that was a legitimate suggestion. And mm. my partner is the head of the psych hospital at Harvard. And 60% of the hospital admissions to the regular hospitals right now are mental health admissions. His hospital is booked. So the mental health consequences mm. of keeping people apart during mm. the pandemic, we have are just beginning to see mm -hmm. the impact of that. My daughter's 16, so I can I can see it in my daughter of having, you know, having been on Zoom school for a year and a half mm -hmm. uh, without ever even meeting the other kids in her high school. You know, that's not good for children to be sitting on a computer all day long. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think what what's what's good for us in general when we're not in a pandemic obviously is in conflict with what's good for us when we're the, when we're in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I, I certainly don't think there's an easy solution to that. I think, you know, the people who fared the best, yeah. uh, I was lucky because I live in a community space where I live next door to my ex, my daughter's father and mm -hmm. her best friend and her best friend's dad. And mm -hmm. in my home, we had one of one of our elders living with us. We had my housemate, April and my daughter, Mira, and all mm -hmm. of us were basically in lockdown together. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think people like that fared better. It was difficult because we had to, I couldn't just do what I wanted during the pandemic. I had to consider the impact on two people in my system that were very high risk. Um, and so we had to be very, very careful to protect that bubble and nobody got COVID. Mm. So, you know, we, I just got COVID for the first time this past August when mm -hmm. I was in Boston. 
So we we succeeded in the public health, you know, um, goals of -hmm. getting us to the point where we had vaccines and effective treatments and all, Mm -hmm. and we knew how to deal with with the infection. But there were so many people, I live in the the Bay Area, and there were so many, like, especially these young guys in tech Mm -hmm. who were living in tiny little studio apartments, and they were locked down by themselves. And this was extraordinarily, um, you know, difficult for their mental and physical health to be Mm -hmm. absolutely, completely isolated. Mm. So, you know, I think it sort of speaks to some of the social determinants of health then, you know, it's like, like you look at one of my friends is indigenous Crow tribe yeah, and his, his tribe was horribly impacted by COVID. So you could look at that and you could say, well, it was a double-edged sword. They had a lot of community, you know, they live mm. may, maybe in multi-generational homes and they also spread that virus right through all those multi-generational mm. homes. So mm. I certainly don't have an easy solution yeah. to something like that yeah there's definitely not a, a cookie cutter or no, straightforward no, no. formula or answer it's, it's no a, and if yeah. you look at history it's it's an interesting thing historically because historically you know humans lived in these local tribes and we didn't yeah. travel much right. and then the the um the people who hmm. what do you call them? the merchants the merchants who would travel say the silk road um to sell their wares when they came back to their community they had to stay in quarantine for two weeks Mm. because who knows what strange infection they might have gotten when they were out on their travels and so they knew enough to know not to uh infect the whole tribe they would stay in isolation and make sure they didn't get sick and Mm. then integrate back into the community but we don't do that so part of globalization is that we're just exposed and infected all the time Mm. and but we've also broken down the tribal living Mm -hmm. so it's it's uh, yeah i was gonna ask like yeah are there what shifts do you feel as a society we can make because i was thinking yeah that the sense of tribal living is i'm not gonna say it's non-existent but in, in in the western culture i i left UK, where my family was when I was 18, basically lived alone for 20 plus years of my life in the US by myself in a country. I mean, obviously had friends, but that sense of connection and, you know, tribal community, I didn't have that. And so I would love to hear your thoughts too on like, what do you feel needs to shift in our culture in, in terms of like how we're living? And what's not working? And and do you have any ideas of like what what might be a I don't say a model, but a, a a healthy possibility of kind of like where we could go as a way of living that might be more harmonious for us as a mm. as a as a as a human being. Well, I'm reluctant to even begin to answer that question. <laughs> it's so far out of the scope of my expertise. I mean, I'm a doctor yeah. and a writer and I train medical professionals and I But that's why I want your perspective because you are because you are a doctor and a writer and you have a spiritual perspective and so yeah. kind of, you know, bringing it all together is just just your perspective. You yeah, know? well, I'll take a stab at it, but again, yeah. there are people who are experts in these kinds of things, and I am not one of them. So I'll just name that as a disclaimer. I guess I want to start by telling the sort of sad 
aftermath of the Rosetta, Pennsylvania story, which is that as that community of immigrants who had come over from the same town in Italy and migrated together to develop a new community in Pennsylvania, as as that generation um, came of age, as the children grew up, mm. you know, they were influenced by American culture and sort of the rugged individualism and the sort of work your way to the top, kind of the American dream. And that meant that they they didn't want to work in the rock quarry and the dress factory and live in this small community of, you know, with a lot of poverty and not a lot of opportunity. Right. So they left the community. They went to college. They got married to people outside of the community. They you know, got ahead in life. They sort of lived the American dream. They got the, you know, suburban house with the picket fence and the dog and the 2.5 kids. And they stopped coming home to the communal dinners and they stopped living with multi-generational family living. And they started having to make appointments to get together. And within a, a generation, their rate of heart disease was the same as the rest of the country. So it was very clear for, for loneliness researchers, it was very clear um, long-term study of, you know, that was sort of a bubble, that they had created a bubble. And it was a, it was a real bubble. And, you know, certainly we've seen people, especially since the 60s, trying to create like intentional communities and um, those have been largely very problematic because many of them have sort of power power struggles and cult-like yeah. dynamics. Um, there have been some successful iterations of that, you know, mm. and I think if we could get that right, um, it always seems to come down to, um, you know, you get that many people who are actually conditioned in Western culture. They're not conditioned to live in a tribe, right? They didn't grow up in an indigenous tribe in Africa or in an indigenous tribe in, in, um, in, in some place where there wasn't the impact of colonization, someplace like the Caros in Peru, mm -hmm. you know, if you're conditioned to grow up in that kind of environment, then you're sort of, um, you're raised to think about the community almost first, like mm -hmm. my crow tribe, uh, chosen brother, um, when he introduces himself, he introduces himself as, you know, a citizen of the Milky Way from, you know, the solar system, from the planet Earth, from the country of the United States, from mm. the Crow tribe, from this is his family name and this is his first name. Like his individual identity is at the end of his sort of collective identity. Uh, oh. And most most um, non-Indigenous Americans are just the opposite. I'm mm. Lissa Rankin, and I think of myself as a citizen mm. of the Milky Way, way in the background, right? Yeah, so my yeah. it's the opposite, almost, right? Right. So it's yeah. sort of that narcissism of the culture of mm -hmm. me, 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 and what's good for me, and how can I? You know, we really saw that play out during the pandemic mm. when people just people couldn't even handle making a small sacrifice. For the mm -hmm. benefit of the collective, they were like, no, me, I'm not willing to make a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. uh, and so so that's part of the problem. And, and when you take Western conditioned humans and you try to put them in an intentional community, you wind <laughs> up getting cult leaders, right? You wind up getting people 
clawing their way to the top and fighting over who gets all who gets to sleep with all the women Mm -hmm. and who gets more of their share of the resources and how do we distribute money and power and influence and and it doesn't usually go very well and those communities usually fall apart pretty quickly Mm -hmm. um but i i you know i i certainly can imagine i i guess i would say like what i'm living it's kind of worked for us we Mm -hmm. you know i didn't my my ex and I divorced, but we didn't abandon each other. We stayed family. I still wow. wear my wedding ring on the opposite hand. Uh-huh. Uh, we stayed next door to each other. We still raise our child together. We have, you know, other sort of chosen family that live with us. And mm-hmm. that's really worked, worked well. It's not a big intentional community, mm-hmm. but it's, um, you know, I, and I don't know how it's going to change over time, but we've been in this setting for 15 years. Mm. Um, and it's the longest place I've ever lived anywhere. And it's been the best, it's been the best medicine for my health is sort of Mm. the community support that I feel like, you know, we, we looked out for each other and I live in a, I live in a small coastal town on highway one in California, north of the Bay area. Mm -hmm. And during, during COVID, it was very interesting to see what happened because we are we actually started meeting many of the criteria of blue zones during the pandemic wow. because the the community was very cut off. The They had cut off tourists. Usually it's a tourist town mm. and there's a lot of tourists that come up Highway 1, but they closed all the beaches and all the state parks, all the parking lots. So only the locals, those of us, I can walk to the beach. So those of us who could walk to the beach could go to the beach. And those of us who could walk to the tourist uh, mm. destinations could walk there. But what that meant is we had like the overlook that's right over the ocean, all the community, we would walk up to the overlook at sunset and people would bring their surplus. They'd bring extra mm. fruit from their tree, wow. extra kombucha that they had made because we weren't going out shopping. Right. Mm-hmm. So they brought extra things from the garden or the fishermen brought extra fish. And we had almost like a spontaneous, um, um bargain like uh um what's the word i'm looking for um, barter, like a barter, barter like yeah. a barter farmer's market mm. um and we had sort of a spontaneous prom for the kids because of course prom was canceled and we had spontaneous uh graduation because graduation was canceled and we were all social distancing and outdoors mm-hmm. but we were still coming into community and during the pandemic <clears throat> We had an anonymous way for anybody who was in the community who needed groceries, who needed financial support, who needed, you know, if they were maybe higher risk and needed extra help, there was an anonymous way that they could ask for help and the community was supporting one another. And it became very tri- very tribal and hostile mm. to outsiders, which is one of the other features of Blue Zones. They mm. tend to be either ideologically or physically cut off from the outside world because it was a very isolated little community. And so mm-hmm. somebody paid to have everybody tested and everybody tested negative. And so they were really trying to boundary wow. around it. But mm-hmm. then, you know, lockdown ended and it kind of went back to being regular business as usual. And I was sort of sad. There was something mm-hmm. lovely about, you know, getting to know my neighbors better than I ever had because we yeah. were all that was our only social life. We were all um, reliant upon each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of yeah. sad to lose it, but it gave me just like a glimpse 
mm. of what could be possible if we if we stayed more local. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for those listening, that that maybe they're they're feeling the loneliness. You know, they live in a city like a Los Angeles or a New York or San Francisco, uh, Chicago, and and and. They're feeling the loneliness. They're acknowledging the loneliness. Um, I'm curious what specific, let's say, advice you could give in terms of what what they could do. And maybe they're feeling like, I don't know how to, I don't know what, how do I, what do I do with this loneliness? How do I, where do I even start? I'd love to give some um, directive to, to, to them in terms of perhaps actions they could take to be proactive in, in, in shifting that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Coot, that empathy piece of mm-hmm. sort of imagining how the people that are listening are going, oh, wait, mm. that's me. I don't have any soul friends or yeah. I don't live in a community like Lissa does or yeah. I don't have that and I'm super lonely. And getting in touch with the empathy of that real mm-hmm. legitimate pain has been sort of the fuel for my work for almost a decade now. And it's the reason that I have started the nonprofit work that I'm doing now at Heal at Last. Part of our, um, that part of that began back when Rachel and I were teaching that class and she was talking to the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, about this public health epidemic. And we were thinking as doctors, is it part of our responsibility to address that loneliness? Like what is the medicine? that we can give if this is such a huge part of preventive health and treatment for sick people, you know, how do we treat it? And so, you know, we would, we're sort of brainstorming in the beginning. We were like, well, we can encourage people to just like start groups. Like you can, Mm -hmm. you can start a group around anything. You can have like a Guinea pig club if you like Guinea pigs and you can have a book club if you like books. But we thought, well, why don't we do more than that? Why don't we, instead of just telling people start a group, randomly. Mm. Um, What if we made the group around treating the traumas that cause loneliness? Because usually social isolation is a trauma symptom. Mm. Part of it is a collective trauma. Part of it is that rugged individualism of Western culture. And it's bigger than us. It's not necessarily a personal trauma. We are in the impact of colonization and genocide and the aftermath of slavery and all the ways that um, group marginalized and oppressed groups of people have been dehumanized. And that's made us scared of each other. And it's kept us Mm -hmm. at odds and at war and all of that. So there's the collective trauma of that, but there's also the personal trauma Mm -hmm. that if we grew up in homes, for example, where humans weren't safe, then we may grow up thinking, I'm just introverted. I just like being alone. I just don't really like being with other people. My housemate has a t-shirt that says, ooh, people. (laughs) And I can relate to that sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. especially in the past few years where you look around and you're like, oh my God, Mm -hmm. people are so scary. You know, they're like storming the Capitol. They're refusing to cooperate with public health guidelines. They're Mm -hmm. like behaving behaving in ways that are just so abusive. Mm. Um, So, you know, part of what we thought is, well, what if we, what if we brought people together in communities that they don't have to pay to be part of kind of like 12 step, like if you're Mm -hmm. lonely, almost all of us can find something we could 12 step. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a (laughs) hundred percent, you know, I'm not a hundred percent a fan of the 12 step model because it's not very trauma informed, Mm -hmm. but what's good about it is that if you are lonely, 
you can go to a 12-step program and say, hi, I'm here to 12-step codependence. And you will get, you will walk away with 15 phone numbers of people who say, call me anytime. And you're welcome to those meetings in the Bay Area. There's a 12-step meeting every couple hours. Wow. Wow. And there's built-in community. You automatically get a sponsor. You Mm. automatically have social support, peer support. If you're there long enough, you get a sponsee. So Mm. you're getting one-on-one support from your sponsor and you're giving one-on-one support to your sponsee. And you've got a a group you can go to all the time and they have sober social activities and they have, you know, trying to form relationships that aren't codependent social activities and hiking and sports and all kinds of things. So we, our thought was, well, what if we build it sort of like that? So it's not something you have to pay for because we don't want it to be something only for the privileged elite, you know, because some people pay $200 a month to join a yoga studio so they can have yeah. a community, right? Or a gym or um, a CrossFit or whatever, but that's expensive and not, mm-hmm. not everybody can afford $200 a month to be part of a, a community, mm. you know? And what if that community mm. then closes? You're now at the mercy of, you don't actually own the community. Yeah. It's a transaction. So mm-hmm. we don't want it to be transactional. Right. So we're actually in the process of, I'm working on the training manual to train group leaders. And we just got our first two grants, but it's not mm-hmm. ready yet. Well, if anybody's listening, you can get on the wait list at healatlast.org. But we're going to be standing up our first program at Harvard as a step down from a program that they already have. And then hoping to grow it from there into something more, mm-hmm. more global. Because I would want to be part of a community like that, mm-hmm. where we're actually doing transformational work, the kind of work you and I typically get paid to do and our clients are typically it's kind of a luxury yep. you know yep. like yep. it's expensive to come to one of my programs or yep. one of your programs and i don't want to i don't want the work that we do to only be mm-hmm. a luxury good for privileged you know mostly mm-hmm. white mostly mm-hmm. cisgender mostly heterosexual mostly upper middle class or middle class yep. people because mm-hmm. you know the the world um uh, you know i i really can't be part of any spirituality that doesn't include um, making sure that there's health equity Mm. and distribution of resources and healing for everybody. Like Mm -hmm. nobody is better than anybody else in this Mm. world. Mm. So, so that's sort of the big picture answer, but you know, on the smaller picture, you know, I, I, when I first moved here to the Bay area and I first started um, getting on social media publicly I would get all these people in the Bay Area that would say, you know, I'm so lonely and you seem kind of cool. Do you want to go for a hike or something? And every day for a while, I'd say, well, I hike at four. If you want to come and meet me at the hiking trail. Mm. And all these people were telling me the same story. I'm so lonely. There's nobody authentic. There's nobody that's really vulnerable and able to like hang out. And I'm and I'm every day I'm surrounded by the people telling me the same story. Mm. So I started playing matchmaker like hey, you call her and her, she can call him. And like, Mm -hmm. all of you are telling me the same story. So I think part of the reality is that we're walking around feeling so distant from one another because we're not opening up and saying, I'm lonely, Mm -hmm. you know? And so- um, Why do you think it's, why is is it so hard to to open up and say, and acknowledge when, when you're so right, like, 50 people around us are feeling the same thing and no one is like opening up and saying it yet. We're right next to each other. We're right next to each other. Why is it so so hard to to, to open up and just 
acknowledge like I'm yeah, lonely. Like, I, I need I need connection. Right. We're we're you know, we're like parched fish swimming in an ocean of potential connection, mm-hmm. but there's shame is what I've realized. People feel shame. If I'm lonely, there must be something wrong with me because mm-hmm. other people aren't lonely. Look, some people have com- whole communities around them. So what's wrong with me? Right, and that, right. that, that uh, can bring up, uh, I, I teach internal family systems, which is a trauma healing method. And in the IFS world, we call those exile feelings. Those are like hopeless, helpless, worthless, unlovable, unspecial, unchosen, really, mm. really powerless. Yeah. Like, oh, oh, those are usually very, very, very young parts of us that, you know, when you, when they feel that pain, it's mm-hmm. almost intolerable. People can sometimes even, even if you're listening, if you notice like a part kind of collapsing, like yeah. what's wrong with me. And I love, I love that Oprah Winfrey and Bruce Perry wrote that book that changed the question. What's wrong with me to what happened to me? Mm. What happened to me? Which is a trauma question, right? It's a compassionate question. Mm. What happened to me that made me so shy or so introverted or so afraid to be vulnerable or so putting on a mask or so pretending that I've got it all together or so so rugged individualist or so John Wayne or so tough guy or whatever that I can't just you know, say I'm, I'm lonely. Like it's, I was really touched. I'm on that uh, social media app. That's local, the the next door app Mm. where it's just your community. Mm. And some young guy, like some 25 year old guy, he posted on next door and said, I'm lonely. Does anybody want to be my friend? (laughs) That's as pure as it gets. Right. I was in, I was like moved to tears by this because there were like 150 people wow. that responded. And he said, you know, I'm just going to put cookies on my doorstep. And if anybody wants to, I, even as I say that, I'm like feeling all moved because it was such a beautiful, vulnerable gesture. And the community just absolutely rallied to his aid. And mm-hmm. he, you know, I, I followed that track for months because it kept going. People kept kept coming and commenting on it because they had gone out and done something with him and they were like almost like giving him Yelp reviews. Like I recommend this guy as a friend. He's like a high quality guy. Wow. Um, so, 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 I don't know. So, 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 so maybe for the person who's been feeling that loneliness, just acknowledging it and, and, you know, taking the shame off, but just acknowledging it. And, yeah, and, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Yeah. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. You're su- right. We're supposed to have, Mm-hmm. connection we're supposed to be tribal and if we don't and we feel lonely that's normal that's an mm-hmm. absolutely normal reaction to n- isolation mm-hmm. but then, if we can take that sort of brave mm-hmm. and vulnerable awkward uncomfortable risk yeah uh to somehow put the message out there um, yes i'm i'm lonely and i'm looking for friends I'm looking for chosen family. Maybe I'm physically isolated from my family or maybe my family has Mm -hmm. shunned and ostracized me or maybe they've died. Um, I don't have, I I don't have a community. Um, But there are people all over the world that are, that like adopt foster children and are more than happy 
I'm uh-huh. I'm always the first one to like take in holiday strays. Like if anybody mm-hmm. doesn't have a place to go for Thanksgiving or Christmas, I'm like the more the merrier. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of people who are very good hearted and generous and mm-hmm. um, and and don't see someone as less than just because they're yeah. lonely. Yeah. But if we don't know if somebody's putting on a a brave or stoic brave face, yeah, face, then we don't know that they are in need. So. Yeah. It's very, I mean, it's, I know for, because this is one of my trauma symptoms that uh, in my family of origin, I was raised that it was not okay to have needs. It was not mm-hmm. okay to make requests. It was, I w- I ended up becoming the caregiver and sort of the parentified child, as many of us did, um, as many caregivers did. And so for me, it's like incredibly difficult to even know what I need, much less like awesome. make the ask. Like it feels almost like breathing over a toothache. Like it's so sensitive because then you risk rejection mm-hmm. or what might, maybe people are going to think you're needy or. Yeah. Or, 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 you know, for me, it was like not getting to ask and not getting those needs met. It, it's, it's like painful. So I'd rather not ask and then totally. I, can't, I can't get hurt. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we make ourselves invulnerable, but the, it's the vulnerability that actually opens the door for connection. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's a double-edged sword because you might get rejected. People mm-hmm. might have a thought or a feeling about you, but the, if we don't even know that someone's in need, how can we come to someone's aid? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's uh I, th- I think no. that, that's a really important point. Just, just the willingness to be, to be vulnerable and, yeah. and, and put yourself out there, even if it's just a little bit, right? Just to ask like, Hey, I'm available. Is it, totally. I'm, I'm, I'm lonely. Is anyone J- just that invitation yeah. I think is, is one simple, but profound and powerful step that, totally. that, that somebody can take. Totally. And, and you don't even necessarily have to say it directly. Like there, you know, if you go to meetup.com, there are, um, whatever you're interested in meditation, mountain biking, cooking, wine tasting, whatever, there are meetups all over the place and you can get on your local meetup.com and you could go to a gathering Mm. And now that things are opening back up, these are happening again in person. And you could just say to the group, like, hey, I'm new in town and I don't really have any friends. Mm-hmm. Does anybody have openings for friendships? You know? <laughs> right. And I would, I would, I would that's see cool. that person as you brave. Could, I'd yeah, be like, that's need, so cool. You often don't hear that, right? So it would, right? would stand out. Yeah, it would stand sure. out. I would be, I would be sort of impressed by that person. I wouldn't mm. see it as like, oh, you loser, you have no friends. Mm. You know, and even if you're not new in town, if you, it could just be, wow, the pandemic just shook up my social circle. I know my social circle got really shaken up because it got very polarized, and I lost mm. about half of my friends because they went QAnon, COVID denialist. Mm crazy Trump, whatever. I was like, whoa, what happened to my friends? Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, I'm not the only one that had their social circle disrupted during the pandemic. So I think it's actually a good time to sort of be open about your values and be open about what your deal breakers are and what kind of friends you're looking for and what, you know, we, we tend to enjoy more being around like-minded people. We don't just want to be around people. Mm. We want to be around people that don't trigger us too much and that mm. generally like, enjoy, you know, enjoy doing some of the things we like doing and have some of the similar value systems. I know for me, like, you know, I'm not interested in having friends who don't care about social justice. Yeah. 
um, I'm just not, that's kind of a deal breaker for me. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. and I make that pretty transparent. So if somebody Mm -hmm. comes out the gate, you know, as a racist or Mm -hmm. talking shit about LGBTQIA plus or, Mm. you know, bullying disabled people or whatever, I'm kind of like, yeah, no. Yeah. Um, But I'm forthright about that. I'm willing to say, you know, that's, I actually am not cool with hanging out with people like you, Mm. (laughs) you Mm. know? Mm. Where is the, I don't know, the, where is the, I don't know if the word is, where is the line, but how does, how, how do you, how have you, how do we navigate? Because on the other side, it, fe- it, it feels also as though, I don't know if we've, if we've lost, I'm not saying this is you, but we've lost maybe a bit of the capacity to be with people that have differences. That's and, a great and, and, Right? And, 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 and. And obviously, yes, you know, don't want to be friends, close friends, buddies with someone that is abusive or racist. But, but it just feels as though it got to a point where you have a difference of opinion as me. Boom, you know, excommunicating you. We're no longer totally. Facebook friends. Cancelled completely versus, wow, I just, rather than being curious. And so where is that? How do we navigate that line? How do you navigate that line to yeah. embrace the differences where it's not just, if you don't believe what I believe, then we're no longer friends. And so I'd love for you to speak to that. Oh, you're such a good interviewer, Coot. You ask really good questions. I appreciate this question a lot. Um, you know, uh, back when Rachel and I did that class almost 10 years ago, <clears throat> I, I went and interviewed a whole bunch of, group of leaders of intentional mm. communities mm. and people who were part of sort of successful tribes, let's call it, um, including actual indigenous tribes, and then also sort of um, intentional communities that were trying to mimic the sort of um, historical tribal nature of uh, human communities. Mm. And one of them gave me the best piece of advice. She said, make sure there is someone in your community that you really don't like. Mm. She said, because otherwise, she said, I'll tell you what happens. Intentional communities come together around a shared set of values. Mm-hmm. And you build this beautiful creation and we care about social justice and we care about whatever. Right. And then those people go on to have children and those children grow up in the community. But those children didn't opt in. They don't necessarily have the same values. They're a whole different generation of people mm-hmm. who are different. Right. And so if the only thing bonding you is shared values, then at some point you're inten- you're your tribe yeah. is, and I'm saying air quotes because there's also sort of the um, the um, cultural appropriation around that term these days, but I'm using it in the in the literal tribe um, yeah. meaning, then your tribe is now fragile, right? Like yes. it's now very vulnerable because like one of the things that my friend who's the Crow tribe, he said, the one thing I can tell you, and he said, this is what makes you and me different is he said, no matter what, I'm Crow. Nothing can ever make me uncrow. I can never not belong to crow. I am crow until the day I die. I can make all kinds of horrible mistakes and the whole tribe knows my business. Everybody in the tribe knows who's beating their wife and who's coming home dead drunk at 10 o'clock in the morning and who, who's molesting their little girl and like, and it, you're still crow. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you white people will never know that. You'll never know what that means. And so, you know, obviously we have to, we have to, we have to learn how to 
have differences with people without dehumanizing them. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so to to be able to acknowledge like, yes, I can take a stand for my values and what I care about, you know, silence is violence and I'm going to use my voice to stand mm -hmm. up for social justice or whatever, whatever I believe in. Um, and there are other people that have different points of view than yeah. mine. Yeah. And so I think we have to continue to practice um, the six stages of empathy that Carla McLaren speaks about in the art of empathy. Um, one of the later of which is perspective taking, mm -hmm. right? So we need to go all the way, not just to perspective taking, which is like, what's it like to be you? What is it like to be you? If I had grown up the way you grew up, would I have grown up to have those belief systems? Like, what's yeah. it like to be you? And to try to imagine putting myself in your shoes and then to go beyond that. It's not mm -hmm. just perspective taking that gives us empathy for other people, especially people that we might not like or might not agree with. But can we go beyond that even into perceptive engagement, which is take engaging in the behaviors that demonstrate that we've actually gone through the emotional labor mm. of imagining what it's like to be you. Mm. And that's tricky because I can, I mean, right now I'm reading the news about the January 6th trial and such, and I've read the history books. I, I can imagine what it's like to be Donald Trump, mm. right? Because I've studied his history, like that little boy that got so overpowered that mm -hmm. some part of him decided never again, am I going to be the least powerful person in the room? Mm -hmm. I'm going to be power hungry and I'm going to grab power everywhere I can mm -hmm. so that I can grab women by the pussy and I can yep. grab the presidency. And if they elect me out, I'll steal it. You know, and, and if I if I go back to that little boy that just got so overpowered that, mm -hmm. you know, then I can start to have compassion for that, even though I can take a firm stand yeah. and use my vote and, mm -hmm. you know, use my voice and use the power of my pen to, to take a stand politically or whatever. Mm -hmm. But 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 I don't have to dehumanize this man. Mm -hmm. I don't have to like his behavior. But I don't have to dehumanize him either. I think that's key. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. And it's difficult. It's yeah. difficult because sometimes people get angry at me. It's almost like we find a because we lack the tribal belonging, we almost find a false sense of belonging mm -hmm. around hating the other side. Mm -hmm. We're going to bond together in our self righteousness and Identity. we're going to be on the yeah. side of good and they're going to be on the side of evil and we're going to dehumanize them. And that's how you get massacres and genocides and wars. So I just continually try in my own spiritual practice and my, my trauma healing to come back to how can I humanize mm. this person? And, and there are people doing great work around that. I'm thinking what came to mind was right at the beginning of the Me Too movement. There's a wonderful TED talk out there with Tom Stranger, and I forget the woman's name. Um, it was basically the story of an Icelandic woman who was date raped by her prom date. And he's now in Australia. She's in Iceland. And they went, through, they met in South Africa to go through a truth and reconciliation as part of her healing. She had requested that he come and meet with her in person, I don't know, 10 years later or something um, to talk about what happened and to reckon mm. with it and to humanize each other. Mm. 
And they did a beautiful TED Talk and wrote a book about it. I wish I could remember the name of it right now, but maybe you can find it for the show notes. Yeah, I can, I can Google search it and find it for you. But it's absolutely beautiful. And I love what she says, which is basically the minute we call, the minute we label him rapist, and then we label him monster, we've mm. now dehumanized this human. And the minute we label her victim and, you know, put her in that category, then then there's no way for them to come together. Mm -hmm. But both of them were brave enough and badass enough to actually like go through the gritty, messy, ugly, painful process of truth and reconciliation. And they did it in South Africa because that was where it was halfway between where they were living and Mm. it was the birthplace of truth and reconciliation. So sort of back to my kind of grander vision, I don't think we're going to heal the epidemic of loneliness until we do more truth and reconciliation around the people that we've dehumanized around making amends with the indigenous cultures, with the colonization wounds, with the enslavement wounds, but also with the people that we dehumanize because they hurt us. Mm. Mm. So I don't, uh, I don't, Mm. I don't know how we do that. You know, I don't know how we do that, but I, I sort of feel it in my heart. Sometimes the Mm. hopeful parts of me or the optimistic parts, like the rewards that we would get if we were willing to do that emotional labor together would be the, the, the prize of intimacy which is, you know, right now, so much of our, our, our society is about power, grabbing power, but even the winners are losing. I mean, look at Trump, like even the winners of the power game are getting crashed down in the Me Too movement. They're going down in scandal. Like, you know, that if even the winners are losing, the game is coming to its close. And my prayer, and this is really part of my spirituality is that if we could get out of the power over, power under, power struggles and open ourselves more to, you know, what happened to each other and how can we humanize one another and how can we try to have more perspective taking and how can we practice truth and reconciliation and redistribute power and privilege connected to the heart of healing? Mm. You know, people are so afraid of what they would lose the power they might lose or the money they might lose or the privilege they might lose. But I, having spent a lot of time now in indigenous communities all over the world as part of the research for my sacred medicine book, I see that what we lost in order to play that game is too precious to lose. It's priceless. Mm -hmm. And it's that intimacy of really knowing your community, really knowing the ins and the outs, the shadow and the brilliance, the blessings and the curses. And, you know, who among us doesn't want to just be loved and accepted for who we are? Not that we shouldn't continue to try to improve, but to be like splayed open. Here I am good and bad, dark and light. Please like love me where I'm most ruined. You Mm. know, Mm. who doesn't want that? Mm. Mm. And we're not very good at it. So we have a long way to go. Beautiful. Um, well, I feel like we could talk for, for hours. <laughs> I was like, this will be a short part too. And here we are. Um, listen, maybe a final-ish question. Final-ish question. Um, you talked about power and redistributing power. I'm curious, like, when you say redistributing power, what, what does that mean? What, 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 like, what does that look like? Does it just, does it mean, okay, 
I made $4 billion. I'm going to give $4.8 billion back to people and just give it away to the homeless and the, you know, the, the, the less able. The, what does it, what does redistributing power actually mean? You know? Well, it's, it's such, again, this is uh, above my pay grade kind of question. Um, but I wrestle with this in my yeah. inner world all the time. And I'll give you, I mean, yes, sure. Redistributing money is one way of doing that, right? I, I think each of us has to almost answer that question for <clears throat> ourselves. Because mm -hmm. some people listening are saying, actually, I need a leg up, right? Mm -hmm. I need more power. And other people listening are going, wait, I have an unfair distribution of power or privilege. And I actually um, need to come back to earth a bit. And I'll give you an example. I, I just finished teaching um, a month-long uh, community at Esalen Institute, teaching um, burnout recovery to uh, healthcare providers after COVID. And one of the things that we did on, the, on day one is I said, I know you guys are used to a leadership position where I'm the one with the power. And you guys are in a power under role and I'm supposed to be sort of the authoritarian leader and I tell you what to do and you're supposed to comply. And I said, but that's, that's how cults are run. And I said, we have to cult proof our communities from the beginning. And that includes redistributing power. And so that means, for example, the leader has to be accountable to being called out by everybody in the group. Mm -hmm. That means they need to be empowered <clears throat> to use their voice and tell me if they feel like I'm abusing my power, they need to be empowered to say no, to not reflexively comply. Mm -hmm. If I tell them to do something and it feels out of integrity for them, or it feels like maybe their nervous systems can't handle it, they're, they're straight out of like shell-shocked war veterans having just come out of a pandemic, they mm -hmm. need to be able to have enough agency and assertiveness to be able to say, actually, no, that's not what's good for me right now. And I need to go do this instead. Um, there's a whole series. We literally spent the whole day mm -hmm. talking about how to empower the community to share power. And every community is going to have to negotiate that differently. It was a day long negotiation and it was messy. Wow. It was messy because if there's not one authoritarian leader saying we do this, <laughs> you get half the people want to do this and the other half of the people want to do this. And like, it's messy. Mm. And the people in intentional communities that I talked to who had experimented with the leaderless groups, they said it was just a total mess. Like you'd spend three hours trying to decide which toilet paper to buy for the community. <laughs> like mm. at some point, somebody had to say, we're buying Charmin or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't think we know how to do that is my bigger answer, but we can begin on an, in each of us individually to just kind of take a, yeah, to, reflect, all, yeah. to reflect on that. We, in this community at Esalen, I inv invited people to introduce themselves with including naming their power and their privilege. So people were introducing themselves or their marginalization or their oppression. So they might introduce themselves as, I'm a, I'm a black, cisgender, <laughs> um, queer, mm -hmm. homeowner with a graduate degree and a retirement account and a live-in partner mm. uh, who has an ACE score of eight. And that, was, that gave a lot of information to the rest of the community about where that person might live mm -hmm. 
in the realm of power and privilege relative to others in the group. And so part of what we talked about is we need to make sure that people who might have typically been more marginalized get to take up more space in the group. Because someone like me typically gets to take up way more than my fair share of space, mm-hmm. even here. Yeah. I'm, I'm the one getting the space. I'm getting the voice. I'm getting heard. And there are so many people that probably have far wiser answers to the questions you're asking me that might not be getting heard. And so how do we even like leverage our microphone or our platforms to Mm. platform Mm. the voiceless or to Mm. platform the people that might have wisdom that may not have had the conditioning that uh, led them to sort of demand the mic? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm very aware of that and I think about it a lot and I I I'm sure I'm not getting it perfectly right mm-hmm. um any of the time but I'm I'm checking myself a lot of the time I think I think that part's important that 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 you're checking yourself and and the awareness and the self-reflection you know yeah. is there knowing that you're in a position of of power you yeah. know and 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 um just spawned a kind of side question of like wh- where is the okay? I, I try to put it on a, on a very base level. Like someone who sits on their ass, lay, lazy for whatever reason, and they do nothing. They don't want to work. They sit around. They do nothing. And someone who has worked their ass off, made the effort, done the work, made the sacrifices, disciplined themselves, and to a degree, you know, they've achieved the level of success. Maybe that's given them access to power. And where is the 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 the, the dance there? With okay, let's let's distribute the power to the person that is basically not doing a damn thing. And how how much do they deserve? Do they deserve? Um, do, do you know what I'm what I'm saying? I do, and. God damn, you ask such good questions. But like, do they deserve like <clears throat> a handout? Okay, they, or... Yeah, they, they deserve a handout when they don't want to work, when they're not contributing to society, they're not necessarily adding value intentionally, and, and they haven't made an ounce of sacrifice and the late nights and, uh, you know, missing this. And and so, yeah, I don't have an answer, but I'm, I'm just curious. No, it's... It's a really good question, and it's so much a part of our political climate right now, right? That question. And I guess, again, because I come from the trauma therapy world, um, and I'm trying to look at these sort of societal issues from a trauma-informed place, um, a lot of the people, I mean, I guess what I would say is our natural Mm -hmm. inclination is to want to be valuable and to contribute. Mm. And to give our gifts to the world and have them recognized. That's what's natural in all of us. Yes. However, some people get traumatized in a way that impacts their nervous system. This I won't get all technical into yeah. polyvagal theory, but um, for anybody who knows polyvagal theory, some people, de- their adaptation is to go into more of a freeze response. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. some people are fight or flight. And those people with a lot of sympathetic driven energy, they can go to grad school. They can stay up all night. I was doing 72 hour call shifts as a doctor, like all that sympathetic energy, that stress response is um, energizing. 
It's like a boost of cocaine, you know, right. from that epinephrine and cortisol. And so you can get a lot done. You can be very productive and have these like striving parts that can mm-hmm. get rewarded with power and privilege and money and mm-hmm. fame and all that kind of stuff. Somebody else who's traumatized, because that's a trauma symptom, the sympathetic fight or flight, right? Mm-hmm. If you're in in that overdrive all the time, that's, I know my own system, why I developed that. But somebody else might be traumatized differently. Mm-hmm. And instead of fight or flight, they might freeze. Now, freeze is a very different energy in the nervous system. It's going to dissociate you, disembody you. It's going to give you a lot of brain fog and chronic illnesses. Usually it's going to make you very fatigued. And the chemistry is very different than the epinephrine and cortisol. It's a Mm -hmm. parasympathetic dorsal vagal um, shutdown, almost like the step before death. It's like the gazelle dropping when the lion's chasing them. When they're running, they're in fight or flight. And when the lion is about to approach them, they drop. Because you don't want to be in your body if you're about to get eaten. So they disembody and dissociate Mm -hmm. and drop. If you're in that dropped energy, that might look like lazy, but it's actually a trauma symptom. And we're, we're neglecting those people. We're not getting the care to them. This is part of why we're developing Heal at Last. At least if somebody like that has enough yeah. energy, we want to make sure that they don't have to have, that, that they're not um, kept from getting the appropriate treatment. Mm-hmm. But if we could actually prioritize seeing those people not as lazy, but as traumatized, mm-hmm. and we could actually get them cutting edge trauma treatments to bring them more into a ventral vagal. This is the parasympathetic part of the vagus nerve that is socially connected. This is the part where when you and I look at each other and we feel our nervous systems calm and we feel um, safety, we feel belonging, we feel friendship, we feel safe. Um, When we're in that ventral vagal state, we're actually more employable. We're more, other people are more drawn to us. We're less of a threat. We're less scary Mm -hmm. to other people. They're less scary to us. And we're able to be more productive. Our cognitive function works better. We're able to, you know, move the needle on things more and and be able to actually contribute and give our gifts to the world. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that's natural. If somebody is not behaving in a way where they're giving their gifts to the world and our, our gifts look different. Um, that they have probably been traumatized. And if we got a a real trauma history, not just the adverse childhood experience score, but also including the things that doesn't include like racism and colonization, the impact of bullying in childhood and things that aren't included, and also developmental trauma in improper parenting or improper um, support in the developmental, the childhood development process, including things like individuation and being able to assert yourself in the world and kind of growing up and not being infantilized, not being dependent, but kind of um, adulting, successful adulting. And a lot of people were raised such that that got interfered and they're, they're in a developmental moratorium. They might be 50 years old and developmentally they're four. Mm -hmm. So we need to get those people up to speed so they can contribute and they'll feel so much better about themselves when they do. Mm -hmm. Most people are not naturally lazy. They don't want to just sit around eating bonbons and getting handouts. Mm -hmm. So that's again, a a larger, a larger answer. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Wow. I feel like we could talk forever. (laughs) I feel like we've covered a a lot, you know, let's maybe let's wrap up with um, what gives you hope about humanity. Oh, well, 
You know, I, I feel so lucky that right now there are so many people, when I talk about Heal at Last, for example, there are so many people that are like, yeah, like we're getting philanthropists. We haven't even started fundraising and we have philanthropists giving us money mm-hmm. um, because people who are, who do have power and privilege are listening and saying, that's right. We need to, we need to get spiritual healing, trauma healing, community support, easing of loneliness to the, the, to anybody who's up for that, because many people are never going to touch their trauma in this lifetime. Yeah. But I feel like if they are up for it and they're ready for it, that should not be a luxury good. So that gives me a lot of hope. I see almost universal um, enthusiasm about these ideas. And I'm part of a think tank of very powerful, privileged, successful people who have absolutely no egoic interest in this and don't even care if their names are ever known. Yeah who are rallying together to try to address this problem from all kinds of perspectives. And I'll name them just because I'm so impressed by them. Chris Rutgers at the Trauma Foundation is, you know, has a philanthropic fund trying to solve some of these problems. Jesse Kohler at CTIP, which is uh, in DC, it's a lobbying group, lobbying for trauma-informed policy and practice in Washington and in politics. Jeffrey Rediger, who's the head of the psych hospital at Harvard, um, and there's a whole there's a whole constellation of people on the next level outside of that that are that are coming in and funding us. And it's just absolutely breathtaking to me how many people have already maybe achieved their egoic goals. Right. Whatever. You've got your New York Times bestselling author. You've made your money or whatever. And they're saying, wait, what? You know, that's that's enough enough. That can be like the hungry ghost if you're just going more and more and more for me. It's like, no, how can we do philanthropic work and how can we um, redistribute power and privilege connected to the heart of healing and actually move the needle? Because there's a lot of needles that need a lot of moving. And if everybody listening who has a little bit of extra power or privilege could just find their own way of giving back, like imagine what we could do. Like, look at what we did. We, We made a vaccine in like nine months or something crazy like that. Like when we put a man on the moon, like when we actually rally yeah. together right. around shared goals and we get on the same page that every about things like every human deserves dignity and deserves health equity. Mm-hmm. Um, health equity is one of my biggest passions because healthcare, including transformational work and trauma healing and spiritual healing, this should not be a privilege. That is not okay. So that's my piece, like, is the health equity piece. But people who are listening, like, you have your own piece. We all have our own gift and our own contribution, you know? And if somebody is sort of um, in, this, in this spectrum where they have, they have less of the power. I mean, I have all the powers and privileges except that I'm female. I am white. I am cis. I am hetero. I am, you know, upper middle class. I am... Um, you know, I have a graduate degree. I'm a medical doctor. I had my A score is zero. Like I have nervous system privilege. Um, there are so many people who have so many less privileges. And so it is, I think those of us, those of us who happen to have those privileges, it's like, I didn't earn those privileges. I was sort of born with a lot of them, Mm -hmm. but it's not fair for me to not use them to make the world better. So that's kind of my activist parts. Awesome. Wow. Thank you for the conversation. It's 
been yes. uh, really beautiful. Thank you for coming back. Uh, really appreciate the work that you're doing. Once again, uh, what's the best way people can connect with you and your work? Yeah, well, I my main website is just my name, L-I-S-S-A-R-A-N-K-I-N.com, Lissarankin.com. And I write about these kinds of things um, very fiery and at sometimes on Facebook. So I have a public Facebook page and, uh, healatlast.org is where people can get on the wait list or if philanthropists want to help fund us or, uh, trauma therapists want to, you know, volunteer to lead groups or things like that. We have a way for people to connect with us there, but we're still, we're still getting started. So be awesome. patient. Healatlast.org and listen. And listenbanking.com. Folks, we'll put that in the show notes. Lisa, thank you so much. Thanks for it's saying yes pleasure. to part two. It was, yeah, uh, yeah, it was fun. It was amazing. It was yeah, amazing. You're, you're a delight to talk with. Thank you so thank much. You. Folks, um, hope you enjoyed today's conversation, part two. If you haven't listened to part one, make sure you listen to that as uh, I think it will connect some dots to part two as well. Share this episode with everyone in your life that you love and uh, send me an email, coopblackson at coopblackson.com. See you next week. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.coopblackson.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.